Thank you for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. You know, the Bible does say, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That's deep revelation. I don't have to add anything to it. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. It's one thing for you and I to get set free on our own strength and on our own ability. It's one thing for you to do something extraordinary. Lose 100 pounds because you worked out and you ate clean and you did the right things and now because of that you've reached an accomplishment. And that's good. But it's a whole nother thing for Jesus to supernaturally make you free of something that your effort could not produce on its own. The reason that the gospel is so potent is because at its core, it's supernatural. What do we mean when we say supernatural? Spooky? No. Super, meaning greater than or above. Natural, meaning natural. Everything that Jesus did at the cross... Everything that we're celebrating this morning was a supernatural occurrence. He came and did what we couldn't do. Supernaturally. Nothing that you can do this morning will make you good enough. <laughs> we're we're going to I'm setting you up a little bit by the way if you're wondering why I keep talking about this. It's not just because communion was so good, but it's because of what we're going to talk about in James this morning. I'm setting us up a little bit, but nothing that you and I could do on our own could produce the righteousness of God. We can't make ourselves good. We needed, we needed a Savior to step in to our situation and redeem us supernaturally above the natural, above what we could produce above what we could do. Amen. Hallelujah. We're going to continue in our James series this morning. And as we've been doing, we're going to review quickly our core values. I think y'all remember that the Lord spoke to me or he, he impressed upon me. I didn't don't mean that I heard an audible voice or anything. It's just the Lord impressed upon my heart that throughout this summer series that we take a minute or two at the beginning of every message to rehearse and remind us of our core values. We have five core values at Hope Church. They are number one, God's word. Number two, God's presence. Number three, God's family. Number four, God's culture. And number five, God's character. And we've taken the last five weeks to go through each one of them. And now we're at step one again. We're at core value number one, which is God's word. How many of you are thankful that you go to a church that values God's word? Can I tell you that as a church and as a ministry, we prioritize God's word first. There's a reason this is core value number one. It's not because of anything other than the reality that without God's word, we don't have access to God. Amen. As a Bible-believing church, you can say amen to that. I give you permission to say amen. Without God's word, we don't know who God is. Without God's voice speaking to us, it's, it's his means of communicating who he is, is his word. It's his method for communicating who he is, is to speak to us through his word. So we value God's word very first. This means that we value a couple things. We value preaching and teaching, which is why I'm standing up here this morning, why 
why others come and stand up here and preach to us and teach to us. And we also value discipleship. That is the fashioning of our lives and building of our lives around the word of God. That's what discipleship is. It's God speaking to us from his word, teaching us how to live, and then in response to that, we order our lives based on what he has said to us. That's how we become disciples of Jesus. When Jesus called Peter and Andrew to come and follow him, what did he say? He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Meaning that if you follow Jesus, he's going to make you into something. If you obey the word of God, if you get around the word of God, if you get some good preaching and teaching in you, the Holy Spirit is going to take what God is saying to you from his word. He's going to make something out of you. Amen. He's going to make, just like he did Peter and Andrew, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Come follow me. Discipleship is an invitation to follow Jesus and for him to make something of our lives. So for these reasons, we value God's word. Amen. Aren't you glad we value God's word? Hallelujah. Well, we're going to jump back into James this morning. I want us to make our confession of faith together, and then I'm going to pray and do just a moment of review, and then you'll figure out what the gloves are for here at the very end. Amen. Thank you to Frankie for getting me out of the jam because I forgot my own gloves at home, and uh, he happened to have some in his vehicle, so thank you, sir. Let's make our confession of faith together. You see it up there on the screen. Say it out loud. Thank you, Father, that today... The eyes of my heart see you. The ears of my heart hear you. My heart and mind perceive and understand your word and your will. Today, I am growing in the things of God. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to come to your word and to be transformed from the inside out. We thank you that your word gives us the ability to change, that your word gives us the ability to grow, that your word speaks and communicates your truth and your heart to us. Father, we're thankful for these things. We ask you to speak through your word to us today. Cause us to see things we wouldn't have seen otherwise. Holy Spirit, breathe upon the word today that it might come into our hearts and be planted as seed on the inside of us and that it may grow and produce a tremendous harvest for your kingdom. We thank you for these things in Jesus' mighty name. And let everyone say amen, amen, and amen. Hallelujah. All right. A couple of uh, quick things for review this morning, and then we'll read our verse, our verses and passage that we need to cover today. How many of you have been enjoying this series on the book of James? Hasn't it been great? Man, I'll tell you. It's like the best meeting you ever got. It's just like, man, just hit me again, Lord. Yes. Oh, thank you, God. <laughs> it's like going to get a deep tissue massage. You're like, oh, it hurts so good, right? Because James is, is, James is so black and white. It's so, it, it, it draws such a hard line in the sand on what we say we believe versus how we live. And, and unfortunately, I won't say the church or Christians, I'll just say humanity in general has a very difficult time lining up its actions with its words. Hypocrisy is normal in our society. And so for us to come and read a book like James, it, it hits a little harder. It, it, it stings a little bit because we, we go, ouch, man, sometimes I'm not actually quite as absolute as I think that I am. We say that, we use that word all the time, absolute, absolutely. It's like, hey, how you doing? You doing good? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely? Did you really think that through? <laughs> Our societal norm is to be wishy-washy. It's just kind of how it's just kind of how the world goes. It's just kind of how the course of humanity goes. Without Jesus, folks, people don't improve. Amen. Without Jesus, people don't improve. Society doesn't improve. Culture doesn't improve. Nations don't improve. Look at any and every 
nation throughout all of history, it doesn't improve until the gospel shows up. It's true. I'm not going to spend any time talking about that, but it's really true. Society doesn't trend towards growth and betterment until you introduce the gospel. And so we as a society have proclivity towards a downward spiral and less absolutes and being less about what we say as time goes on. We get worse and worse and worse at being good at what we say. So hypocrisy becomes the norm generation after generation after generation. And I'm here to tell you that it's the responsibility of the church to push against that trend. That what we say and what we do has to line up. Integrity has to be the normal and the foundation in the church of Jesus. Because if it's not, if it's not the foundation here, where else are you going to find it? Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you. What's the theme of James? I want to bring it out at the very beginning just as a reminder. What's the theme of James? Grow up. That's right. Grow up. I, I, I bet that by the end of this, we're going to be able to come up with a handful of statements like grow up. That's just going to mean, you know, chapter one is, you know what chapter one is? Cheer up. Cheer up. Right? Chapter 2 is, uh, man up. <laughs> Grow up. I give you the, the full definition that I gave you at the beginning for the theme of James. Maturity through divine wisdom and authentic faith. We're going we're gonna to get into divine wisdom in chapter 3 as James contrasts the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And it's really amazing because right in the middle of what we talk about today and that wisdom piece, he sandwiches this little small argument about how to control your tongue. It's pretty significant. But for a moment of review, we talked last week about what it means to be doers of the word rather than just hearers. We said that if you will do more, you will hear more. And then you will do more, and you will hear more, and then you will do more, and you will hear more. And round and round the carousel goes. Let me just say this real quick. You know the interesting thing about maturity? You want to know why it's, why it's hard for people? It's because maturity is boring. Maturity is monotonous. Maturity is hear and obey today, and then tomorrow, hear and obey again, and then tomorrow, hear and obey again, and then the day after that, hear and obey, hear and do, hear and do, and if you do that long enough, you'll be mature. And the reason that that's not exciting it's because it's monotonous. Oh, the maturity is exciting. The result of maturity is so exciting. I said this at the beginning of the series that many of us want the rewards of maturity, but we're not necessarily willing to pay the price of maturity. What's the price of maturity? Hear and do. Hear and do. Well, I don't feel like it. Hear and do. Well, I'm tired today, Pastor. Hear and do. Yeah, but you won't believe what she said to me. Hear and do. It's not sexy. But it is super effective. And it's how world changers are made. Amen. It's how leaders are manufactured. In the monotony of obedience. That sounds like a series title, Frankie. The monotony of obedience. Frankie and I are always kicking across series title. Write that one down, bro. That's a good one. <laughs> we talked a little bit last week about partiality at the end of the message. 
the second part of the last part of chapter two, or the, or the last part of the section we were in in chapter two, is about partiality. And we said that partiality is a form of manipulation. And as a result, it is counterfeit honor. It takes the principles of honor and it twists them to fit some selfish agenda. And we don't have time for that, amen? How many of you don't have time for partiality in your life? Glory to God. So we're going to continue today, and I want to remind you as we continue today to allow this book to be deeply personal. Allow what we study in this book to remain deeply personal. Don't take what I'm saying week to week and and assign it to your spouse. You know? Oh, yeah, praise God. Preach it, pastor. You listening to him? Preach it. She needs to hear it. Yeah, amen. No, this is deeply personal. We don't do that. Amen? Right, babe? We don't do it. You know what's amazing? Can I tell you something? Can I be honest with you for a second? When we get into a study like this, see, see, we think that the Holy Spirit only moves from 10 a.m. on Sunday to 11.45 or whatever time we finish, and then we, we did church and we had church, and that was good, and praise the Lord, that's great. Can I tell you, the Holy Spirit is working around the clock in your life. And what we, the, I learned this early on in my life, what you preach is what you get. So what I'm preaching to you, don't be surprised this week when it challenges you when you least expect it. My wife and I were talking about that this morning. See, we're in the Word and we're studying the book of James. What's it doing? It's bringing stuff to the surface in our marriage. Y'all think we're immune from this? We're not. Amen. In fact, we're the leaders. If we can't go there, you can't come with us. That's how it works. We were just talking about it this morning. So don't be surprised. We get into a hard series like this or a series that challenges us. Don't be surprised if Wednesday morning you're crabby. And something that we said on Sunday comes back around and, and, and now you get the chance to pass the test. And to determine, did I really hear, did I really get something on Sunday? Am I really going to do what I've heard? Amen. We're, why am I telling you this? Because we're all in this together. We're all in this together. Brianne and I, we're growing right along with you. Amen. Amen. So let's continue with the the last section of chapter 2, and then next week we're going to dive into chapter 3, talk about the untamable tongue. Ay, ay, ay. Don't miss next week. Begin in verse 14, we'll read down through verse 26, a big big passage, but it's got one predominant theme. It's a, a long string of verses, but it's nice and full. What does it profit then, my brethren? Verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone, I told you this is hard. I mean, James just paints a line, man. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, prove it. You got faith? Prove it. You believe that there's one God. You do well. God, don't you love the snarkiness of James? You believe there's one God. Good job. So do the demons. Way to go. You're one click above the head demon because you say you believe in God. But do you know, O foolish man, verse 20, do you know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? 
Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by, the, by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Oh, man. This is a tough one. This is one of those tension creation passages where it creates what I would consider to be doctrinal tension. Doctrinal meaning coming from the word doctrine, which means the order of what we believe. If you want to understand what doctrine is, it's the order of what you believe. It's the categorization and the structure of what you believe. Remember, you'll remember several weeks or a couple months ago when Sean and I were up here talking at the end of our series on how to hear from God. We talked about the, the word epistemology. You remember that? You remember the word epistemology? It's the, it's the method by which you formulate your doctrine. It's the places you go to look for what you believe. And then what you do is you gather. Your epistemology informs everything that you say you believe. And then we take what we believe and we gather it and we categorize it and we build a system of doctrine. And this passage is, it creates a doctrinal tension that we have to clarify if we're going to understand what James is talking about. Y'all with me so far? Okay. So let's begin by defining a couple terms, and then we'll get into the meat of all this. Let's just, for, for the sake of, of simple definition and to make sure that we all start from the same point, let's define faith and let's define works. Can we do that? Faith, all throughout the New Testament, is the Greek word pistis. Pistis. It means very simply the conviction of the truth of anything or belief. If you wanted to sum up faith in one word, you could say the word belief or to believe. In the New Testament, faith is a conviction or belief respecting man's relationship to God and to divine things. Generally, with the included idea of trust and of holy fervor born of faith that is joined with that trust. This came out of Strong's Concordance, by the way, if you want to know where these things are that I'm quoting. In the New Testament, faith is the conviction or the belief that, that is respective of man's relationship to God and to divine things. So it's the, the baseline is, yes, I believe in God. And then included in this idea is the idea of trust and of the fervor, the holy passion that is linked together with that belief in Jesus. That belief in God. Let me read it again. Generally with the included idea of trust and holy fervor born of faith and joined with it. Let me give you two scripture verses that can, that can kind of solidify this in our minds. One, both of them come from Hebrews chapter 11. Often referred to as the New Testament hall of faith or the faith chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Simply put, faith, it's our faith is the conviction of what we can't see. Our faith is the conviction of the things that we can't see. It's the fact that I can't see, how many of you can see God right now? Anybody looking at God? No. Now I know we can make the argument, well, I'm looking at you and you're made in the image of God. No, <laughs> Hush that for a second. How many of you are physically looking at Jesus right now? Nobody. 
So, but that doesn't dim or diminish your faith in him, your conviction of the fact that he's real and personal and living and interacting with you, right? Our faith is our commitment to and the conviction of that which we can't see. Now, if you go down verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, it goes on to say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There's two criteria in this scripture. It says that without faith, you cannot please God. Without believing in Jesus, that's why belief, that's why faith is so, is so important. That's why it's one of the most important things in the Bible for you to understand. Because without faith, I don't have access into any of this stuff. And, and, and without, without believing in the right thing, I'm deceived, which is even worse. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And then there's two criteria that he lists. For he that comes to God must believe, number one, that he is. Number two, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Let me put it to you this way. Faith believes that God exists. Excuse me, let me, I read the wrong line on my notes. Faith believes that God is real and that he's at work. Those are the two basic criteria that, that the writer of Hebrews lists here for us. That God exists and that he's at work. I believe in his existence. I believe in the reality of him and of his activity. If you want to define how faith works and what it is, it's you believing that God exists and believing that he's at work. I believe that he exists, and I believe that he exists in my life specifically. That's faith. Amen? Now, there's a whole lot of mechanics that go along. There's a lot that the Bible tells us about how faith works and all of that. I'm not going to get into that today. But this is just a baseline understanding of what faith is. Faith believes in both the reality and the activity of God. Man, I believe that Jesus is real, don't you? I believe Jesus is at work in this world. I believe that Jesus is living and he is active in his body and in this world. I believe that the spirit of God right now is real and is working in each and every one of us. That's faith. Now let's move on to define the word works. The word works is the word ergon in Greek. It means that which one undertakes to do. It's enterprise and it's undertaking. That which one undertakes to do. It's enterprise and it's undertaking. It can also mean any product, anything accomplished by hand, by industry. Like, like, we, like we say this sometimes, we say, oh, that was a work of art. That was a work of art. It was something that was produced. How was, how, was your, how was your tenderloin today, Mr. Thim oh, it was a work of art. Whoever produced this did a great job. This work was well done. That's the idea that's conveyed in this word works that James speaks to us about. It's a work of art. There, there's, there's almost an implication in this Greek word of success. Like something was done and it was done well. Now, we understand, does everybody have a pretty clear understanding at this point of faith and of works? We all starting from the same starting point? I think it's really important to do that so that we don't, we don't jump into this passage and have wrong ideas of what these words mean. I think we've got to make sure we're all on the same page, right? So that having been said, James starts out with a question. He says, what is it, profit? What does it profit? Verse 14. If somebody says they have faith and don't have works, can faith save him? It's a heavy question. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that question and we're going to parallel Romans 5 and James 2 here in just a few minutes. But he asks this serious question. What does faith profit you if there's no working with it? And that's a real question. It's a strong question. I want, to, I want you to hold your finger in James for a second. 
and hop over to 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because what James is doing here without saying it is he is, he is comparing and contrasting real faith with fake faith. And we're going to see a word here in first, 2 Timothy that's going to help us. 2 Timothy chapter 1 Verse 5, this is Paul's introduction to Timothy, who is his son in the faith. 2 Timothy 1.5 says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, I am persuaded it is in you also. Paul, at the very beginning of his second letter to his son Timothy in the faith, commends him for what he calls genuine faith. Genuine faith. I looked up this word genuine in the Greek. It's a, it's a challenging word to pronounce, so I'm not going to bother to try to pronounce it. But it means, without hypocrisy, sincere, and this one's my favorite, undisguised. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, good job, buddy. You've got real faith. You've got genuine faith. Paul, what do you mean by that? I mean, Timothy's got faith that is without hypocrisy. Timothy's got faith that is sincere. And Timothy's got faith that is undisguised. How many of you know that every last one of us in this room, every last one of us watching online this morning, is guilty of, at some point in our lives, having hypocritical faith. Every one of us. And we don't want to admit that. We don't want to talk about it. And I'm not here to call you out on it either. James is doing a really good job of that without my help. Amen. <laughs> Every one of us at some point in our lives have elevated the mechanics of faith above the actual reality of what genuine faith is, which is to really believe that God exists and that he's actively working in my life. A lot of us have, 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 have used confession and we believe that we're in faith because we're saying all the right things. But it's real easy to be not genuine in that activity. I've done it so many times. I can't tell you how many times I've done it. Like, hey, bro, how you doing this morning? And because I want to look like I have faith, blessed and highly favored, brother. Hey, man, how, how's your marriage going? Oh, bro, it's so good. And in the, in, in, in the back of my mind, my mind and heart's fighting me going, no, it's not, dork. Why did you say that? Faith has an honesty about it. Faith has, a, has an unhypocritical genuineness about it. Now I understand if you're believing God actively for something, if you're standing in faith to see a result happen in your life and you're committed to that, I understand. Yeah, go ahead and answer. Give the faith answer. But don't forget to be genuine. See, what a lot of people think faith is, is they think it's the denial of a certain circumstance. Faith is never denial of a circumstance. It's the institution of God's word coming into that circumstance to change it. In other words, James chapter 5 tells us, we're going to get there in a few weeks. James chapter 5 tells us if there's any of us sick, let him ask for the elders of the church to come, anoint him with oil and pray, and that the prayer of the faith will save the sick and God will raise him up. So when you're sick, you know, fake faith says, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick in Jesus' name, I'm not sick, I'm not sick in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, by Jesus' stripes I'm healed, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, I'm not sick, hallelujah, amen, I'm not sick. Oh, I'm sick. That's fake faith. It's not genuine. You're trying to believe something you don't actually believe. 
and you think that because you just try to trick your mind into believing it that now somehow you actually believe it. That's not how faith works. Faith works when the word of God has come to the point in your life that you have been convinced of it as truth. Then faith rises up in your heart and you say, I I see the situation, I see the symptoms, I see the problem, but I'm not moved by that. I've already been convinced of the word of God as the truth. That's real faith. Now, for the sake of time, we gotta go back to James because I could just preach on this point for the rest of our time together, but then we wouldn't get through the end of the chapter. If there is such a thing as genuine faith, as Paul points out in 2 Timothy, then there must also be, by contrast, such a thing as faith that is not genuine. If there's a real faith, then there's got to be a fake faith out there too. So what's the difference? Well, faith has corresponding action. How do I know that I'm operating in real faith? Well, it will be dictating what you do. Can I tell you this? You're already doing what you really believe. Amen? You were wired by God that way, and you're never going to change that about yourself. What you do, how you live, what you think, what you say, is a product of what you actually believe. And it's always been like that. It's always going to be like that. Jesus said it this way. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth speaks. That is the reality of how God hardwired us as human beings. Whatever you're full of, it's going to come out. Whatever you genuinely believe is how you genuinely live. So there's no point in trying to modify your actions without changing what you believe first. Hallelujah. Our works don't produce great faith. But it is great faith that produces good works. Faith has a corresponding action. So the good works that James is talking about here is an evidence of the fact that our faith is real. And if I'm struggling to produce good works in my life, then I need to take a step back, number one, and ask God, have I really received your grace the way that I need to? And once you've done that, say, Father, I receive your grace to help produce in me some good works that will make my faith come alive. James is saying to us, oh, you got faith? Prove it. Look at verse 18 again. Someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. Anybody ever heard that kind of thing before? I always, can I tell you where I always hear this, this sort of argument? Is with missions, with evangelism. Well, you know, brother, you're called to the lost. <laughs> I'm just called to pray. You're a liar. And you're full of it. <laughs> Amen. Well, you know, brother, some people are just called to, some people are just called to be a blessing to those in need. And, and so what? You're called to be selfish? No, James debunks the argument. He says, some people will say, well, I got, you got, I, I got, I got, I'm the one with faith. You're the one with the works. You go do the works. You go love on the unlovable. You go, you go overseas and you, do, you spend your money to go and, and be on the mission field and you know what, brother? I'm the one with the faith. I'm gonna pray. You're full of it. The BSometer is going. Some of y'all, I just lost you for the rest of the sermon because I said BSometer. James is saying, hey, you, you think you got faith? Prove it. In other words, you try to show me your faith without your works and I will show you that I have faith because of what I'm doing. In other words, the action speaks louder than the words. 
What did Jesus tell the disciples? How, did, how was it that Jesus said that people would know that we were his disciples? Two things in the Gospels. Number one, he said they'll know them by their fruit. Number two, he said you'll know them, they'll, they'll know you by your love for one another. Those are the two criteria Jesus gave for the way that the world would know that we belong to him. Here's the, here's the funny thing about fruit. It announces before you ever get close to it what kind of fruit it is. How many of you ever walked up to an apple tree and you'd be like, God, those are lovely watermelons? <laughs> no. No, you don't. Why did Jesus, can I ask you a question? Why did Jesus curse the fig tree in Mark 11? And then, and then give us the, the best lesson on faith in all the Gospels? Why did he do that? Because what did, the, what, did, what did the fig tree have? The appearance of fruit, but no fruit. Jesus walked up to the fig tree expecting to find some fruit on it. And when he got there, realized there was none. Do you know what the fig tree was? The fig tree was a picture of, of, of a life with claiming faith and nothing to show for it. And Jesus, you know what Jesus said? Let no one ever eat fruit from you again. Ouch. You believe that there's one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. He goes on to, to make a statement here in verse 21 that, create, that further deepens this theological and, and uh, doctrinal tension that I was talking about. Verse 21 says, Would not Abraham our father justified by works? Anybody else find a problem with that statement? Theologically? Yeah, let's do this. Hold your finger here and go to Romans chapter 5. And let's, let's see if we can reconcile this tension. I love having theological exercises, don't you? Romans chapter 5, verse 1, please. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a student of history particularly church history, you understand that the fact that we're even here as non-Catholics, okay, we're the, the, the world leading up to what, the, what is called the Reformation, was, was the, the Christian world was Orthodox and Catholic. And then Martin Luther one day had enough of it. And he said, no, 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 people are not justified by their works. They're justified by grace, and they're justified by faith in Jesus. And, he, and, and, and the, the Protestant Reformation was born. And out of the Protestant Reformation, which happened just over 500 years ago, out of that comes all of us. Okay? The gospel as we know it, as we know it, was, was hastened and brought to the forefront because of people like Martin Luther and because of the Protestant Reformation. The, the, the whole Protestant Reformation hung on the words of Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. I don't want to give a whole history of it, but the Catholic Church was doing some terrible things at that time. That's not to speak bad of the Catholic Church. There's some lovely Catholics. I love them all. Got half of my family's Catholic. I love them. But at that time, coming out of the Dark Ages... The Catholic Church was selling indulgences, basically selling tickets to heaven. They were abusing the gospel at that time. It's an ugly stain on the history of the Catholic Church. And it's just reality. I'm not picking on them. This is what happened. You say, oh, well, my, you know, my grandfather died last month. And it's like, I'm not sure if he was really going to heaven or not. So you could go see the priest and give, make sure that you gave enough money. And if you gave enough money, we can get him out of hell. It was called indulgences. 
And it's one of the things that caused the Protestant Reformation to happen because people like Martin Luther got a hold of this idea that we're not justified, we're not, we're not saved because one of our relatives paid a big offering. We're saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our faith in him. We're justified by faith. So now what do you do with James chapter 2 when James says, wasn't Abraham justified by works? Anybody else feel the tension theologically? So what do we do with this? Which is it? Which is it? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? Yes. Of course. Yes. It's easy to read these two verses and and think that Paul and James are at odds with each other. But there's actually a very simple difference. In Romans, Paul is speaking about the works of the law. Romans is a is is a oh gosh, it's a thesis. It's a it is a doctoral level thesis on the gospel. The book of Romans is amazing. If you've never spent time reading Romans, please do. It's phenomenal. It's a thesis doctoral level of a presentation of the gospel. And Paul is contrasting the works of the law, the Mosaic law, with the works that Jesus did with the blood of Jesus, with, the, with the, res, the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In Romans, Paul's speaking about the works of the law. Here in James, James is speaking about the works of faith in the life of a believer. Not the same thing. Under the Mosaic law, and by the way, in so many other world religions, people attempted to do good works in order to be good enough to be accepted by God. And that's what Paul is pushing against. He's saying there's nothing you can do to make yourself worthy. There's nothing you can do in and of yourself. That's why I was talking about that at the beginning, you see. There's nothing we can ever do to make ourselves worthy enough to be accepted by God. You see, people under that mosaic system and still to this day in countless world religions, man. You, you preach the message of grace to a Muslim, do you know what happens? They fall on their knees and they weep and they cry out to Jesus. Why? Because they try so, so hard to be good enough. And it's like that in so many world religions. There's only one religion that's got a Jesus that does everything for you. I mean, there's only one religion in this world. There's only one way to God that has Jesus at the centerpiece. You can't get to him. This is why John 14, 6, we quote all the time. Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the light. No man comes to the Father but by me. Why? Because he's the only one that did what you couldn't do to make you righteous. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So James' argument is not that. James is not arguing against works leading to salvation. James is making the argument that now that you're saved, if your doggone faith is real, it ought to be producing some good works. You see the difference? Oh, the theological tension has been solved. Let's take a deep breath of satisfaction. Oh, it feels so good. James's argument is that now, under the new covenant, Jesus' blood has made me righteous. And so my good works are now a byproduct of my faith in him. So if my faith is authentic, if I say I love Jesus and I'm part of the body of Christ, I'm a Christian, my life ought to back that up. Hallelujah. My works, your works are not trying to earn us forgiveness. Instead, our good works are actually now good because God's already forgiven us. Isn't that amazing? You see, your best work without Jesus wasn't good. But now that you've been forgiven, 
your works are good. Why? Because you've said you've put your trust in Jesus. We read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18, now all things are of God. Now that you're saved, the work you do for God's kingdom, it's already blessed. Why? Because you've been made a new creation in Christ. You're not trying to work for righteousness. Righteousness is working for you because you were made righteous. Hallelujah. What a difference. What a difference. Now, our actions, our good works, the things that we produce, the acting on our faith, now, that positions us to experience the promises that our faith has fastened itself to. A good example of this, and I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but you can go read Mark chapter 5 later. An example of this from the New Testament would be the woman with the issue of blood. The Bible says that she had this issue of blood for 12 years. She'd seen every physician. She had not gotten better, but she rather grew worse, spent all that she had, and she was destitute. And the Bible says that she heard about Jesus. She heard about Jesus. And what did she do? Just like James told us in, in chapter one, she, was, she became a doer of the word that she had heard. She heard that Jesus was passing by. And so what did she do? She said in her heart, if I may touch the hem of his garment, I know that I should be made whole. And so she got up and she pushed through the crowd. Her faith in the fact that Jesus could heal her caused her to get up from where she was. She wasn't waiting for Jesus to come to her. She was gonna go to Jesus because if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. So what do I need to do? I need to move from where I'm at. I need to put some works to my faith. I believe in him and I'm gonna get to him. And when I get to him, I'm gonna touch the hem of his garment. I'm gonna be made whole. What happened? Exactly what she said. So much so that when after the miracle happens, Jesus turns to her and looks at her and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go and be freed from this affliction. What was it that made her well? Her faith or her works? Yes. Jesus said her faith made her well. But it wasn't faith that just sat there. It wasn't faith that just sat there. Amen. It was faith that said, I'm going to get up and do something. I see you, brother. We'll get to you in a minute. It wasn't, it wasn't faith that just sat there. It was faith that said, if, if, if this Jesus is really who he says he is, remember, without faith, it's impossible to please him. I got to believe that he is. And that he's active. He's a rewarder of those diligently seeking him. If that's the case, I'm moving. I'm going to get up. Hallelujah. Her faith did not stop at what she heard. Yet for many believers, that's where things stop. And then that's where they stop. I, I, I want to I repeat that because I want the... Not severity is not the right word, but I want the, the, the intensity of that statement to, to hit our minds. Her faith did not stop with what she had heard, yet for many believers, that's where things stop. And then that's where they stop. And countless Christians are like the old man sitting on the porch, just hanging out there all day waiting for God to come by. When God's invitation is put some work to your faith so that what you're believing for can actually work in your life. I brought these gloves. Well, Frankie brought these gloves. I'm borrowing them. Because I want to give you a visual example of how this works. And, and I'm taking this example from the very last verse. It says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If you look at this glove, it's lifeless. 
Why? Because there's nothing in it causing it to have life. But the minute I take my hand and put my hand in here, the glove has some purpose. Why? Because there's something in it causing it to work. This glove does me no good by itself. Likewise, faith does you no good by itself. You gotta, you gotta respond with some action so that your faith comes alive. Now, if, if this glove wasn't on my hand, but it was still doing this, <laughs> we'd be like, <laughs> it's like Cousin It. You remember Cousin It? If this thing, listen, if this thing didn't, if this was doing this on its own, we'd say there's something wrong with that. But no, you understand that it's, it's, it's not the glove that's doing the moving. It's the hand in the glove. And, and James says just the same way that the body's dead without the spirit in it. The same way that the body's got no life without the spirit in it. There's nothing in there to make it animate. There's nothing in there to make it move or to make it effective. That same way our faith without our works is just an empty glove. But the minute that I put some works behind my faith, now the glove is working for me and I'm working for the glove. So many times, so many of us have this idea that we're standing in faith just by waiting on God. I'm here to tell you, faith without works is dead. I said this last week. My friend, Pastor Josh Roberts, one of his quotes from his sermon, and I love it. He said, just God doesn't move parked cars. <laughs> it's so... How many of you have figured this out? It's so much easier to steer a car that's moving, right? So much easier to steer a car that's moving. In fact, it doesn't even take much. It doesn't even, it doesn't even take much, man. If you're going, if you're going like 40 miles an hour, all you got to do is lean on that wheel just a little bit, and the car will start to turn. But if you're going five miles an hour, it takes a whole lot more force to get it to move. If you're standing still, you can steer it all you want. It's not moving. Oftentimes, we're like the gloveless, the handless glove. We're acting like we're believing God for something, but we're not actually doing anything. And our car's in park. And God, at that point, is not actually trying to steer you. He's just trying to get you to move. I can tell you that people that I've known, have witnessed, and also, I myself in times and seasons of my life have missed opportunities, have missed open doors. I've missed what the plan of God has been for my life by sheer apathy. But I mask it by saying, well, brother, I'm waiting on the Lord. And keep waiting. Because faith without works is dead. 
faith without some corresponding action. God, listen, God, the Bible says in, in, in the book of Proverbs that, that, or excuse me, in the book of Psalms that, that the Lord's word is a light to a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That the, the, the Bible says that the, that the path of the upright is prosperous. The Bible makes all kinds of promises about the direction that God wants to lead us. And I'm here to tell you, it's really super easy for God to, to adjust the direction when your app's actually moving. But if I'm just hanging my hat on faith confessions, on scriptures pasted to my mirror that I've seen so many times that they actually don't mean anything to me anymore, if I'm just pretending to have the appearance of faith with zero action, I'm like a parked car. I'm a gloveless hand. And Paul puts it a little stronger in 1 Corinthians 3. He said, you can have faith to move mountains. But if you don't have the love of God, you're a clanging brass and a sounding gong. How does Paul describe the works of are accompanied by faith, love. That's why he writes to the Galatians that faith works by love. When the love of God becomes the motivation of my heart, all of my works are a product of my faith and they're authentic and they're producing something good in the kingdom of God. Amen. Would you stand up to your feet this morning? Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. Luther, you had something... obedience of faith. That's it. It's, it's this idea that my, that my faith is so consistent with what God has said that my actions follow in line with what I say that I believe. And that's how it works. And if I'm just claiming faith but I'm not being obedient, then I'm just a, I'm just a gloveless, handless glove. Jeff said this just a second ago. He said, the word wait is an action word. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, they that wait upon the Lord. We think that's passive. No, it's they that wait upon the Lord like, like a waiter. What would you like to drink, sir? Would you like me to give you the specials for this evening? It's in the waiting that he renews our strength. Claire, would you put Isaiah 40, 31 on the screen, darling? Isaiah 40, 31. We'll give her a second. I mean, I could quote it to you, but I'd rather you see it. being slow, huh? I-S-A-I-A-H. Isaiah 40, 31 says, they that wait upon the Lord, here it is, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. The key word in this verse is actually not the word wait, although I'm glad that we've defined what it means to serve. The key word in this verse is the word renew. 
Because like, like we said in communion, this word renew means to exchange in the Hebrew. Those who wait, those who are serving like a, like a butler, like a waiter at the table, those who are waiting upon the Lord, Lord, I'm here to serve you. What would you like me to do for you? What can I get for you? What is it that you would have me do, God? Those who are busy waiting on the Lord shall what? Exchange their strength. You don't need to exchange your strength for God's strength when you're sitting down. You're sitting down. You don't need to exchange for God's supernatural strength when you're not doing anything. <laughs> it's true. When is it time for you to get some supernatural strength? When you're busy waiting on the Lord. Lord, I'm serving you. What is it that you would have me do? When, when Paul met Jesus... In Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, he made such a profound statement. The Bible says that the, he saw a light that was brighter than the sun at noon. It knocked him on his back. He looked up and he said, Who are you, Lord? And then he said this, What would you have me do? An authentic response to seeing Jesus and embracing him as Lord is to say, Lord, you tell me, Lord, what, what do you want me to do for you? How can I serve you? How can, how can I serve you, God? What would you have me do? I want you to bow your heads. I want us to ask that same question. I want us to be like the Apostle Paul this morning. Lord, what would you have us do? Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose, and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further, or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com, where Jesus loves you, we love you, and your life counts.